Hello. Hello. What's up? Hey, I just sent him the third one. He texted so I think does he got it now? I'm not sure. He should have it. I think uh he should be getting in, hopefully. Yeah, I just sent him the third one. I said, he wait for the new, I said wait for the new link ah, and put it He's again. on. Hey I, I'm sandwiched between M- Michael and Rob. 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 <laughs> Rock and Rob. How come there's no picture of me? Well, we're going to have to oh. put something there. <laughs> I don't I'm know. Like, I hate those motherfuckers online who hide. They join, <laughs> they join these things. And they It's like, I want to be a friend. I'm not going to show you what I look like. I'm not going to show you yeah. anything about my life, but I want to know everything about yours. Right. And they, they just spy on you. And, you know, they never they never say nothing. They never hit like or anything, but, you know, they're watching. I call I've called them one way mirror motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Rob, give a little intro here. Hey, um, everybody, welcome to Getty Lumped Up. And this is uh Rocker Mike and Rob present the great, fantastic Dick Manitoba. The mighty Dick How Manitoba. How you doing, Manitoba? I'm doing like you're doing. I'm trying to fucking pay my bills. I'm trying to take, well, I don't know if you have a son, but I take care of my 17-year-old son. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to get motivated. I, I, I have a real dichotomy in my personality. It's very polar as far as, as far as um, energy and, and performance goes. Like, for example, at one point I was running Manitoba's Bar. Right, and at the same time doing five shows a week up at Sirius XM Radio now for little re- Steve, for little Steve. Right, I remember that. Yeah, and at the same time I was traveling to Europe six weeks a year with the Dictators NYC, plus guest starring, plus you know master of ceremony, plus this, plus any job I could get that I thought was creative or fun, I would do. So I just I was just like you know into being busy all the time and getting my ass out there now. <laughs> That's one part of me, and I'm a very, very hard worker. The other part of me is one of my dreams was to buy a small apartment, cozy, down in Miami Beach, and just <laughs> go to the beach and then come back to my apartment and bang out my radio show. And right. Make a really, I was making a really good living, and with my Social Security, I'd be living super comfortably on Miami Beach with girls 40 years younger than me going by on roller skates and bikinis. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, to me, like that's I could be a beach bum. So this yeah. is the negative side of being a beach bum. Like all of a sudden, I'm really lazy. I gained a lot of weight, and and I just ordered those uh, fucking rubber bands because I'm like, I gotta stop. Like you gotta yeah. wake up one day and say, I'm gonna do this. That's it. I gotta do something. I well, can't. I, 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 I see you. You've been posting salads and stuff on your Instagram, so I know you're trying. Yeah, but did you see that sandwich I posted last night? No, that I did. <laughs> oh my god, it was a one. It was a one sandwich heart attack. <laughs> it's like a corned beef cat sandwich or something. No, no, it was oh. from Russo's Italian Deli. It oh, was okay. Italian bread with seeds, soft, not the hard, and uh, <laughs> fresh salted mozzarella. But I put olive oil on the bread, there and then go. and then I put, uh, believe it or not, I put prosciutto in the microwave for thirty seconds just to warm it, and then I, I chopped up a bunch of pieces of of uh, fresh hard the hard sopasata, yeah. and, and I put that in the microwave so it gets crunchy like chips. And then I put wow, red, wow, wow. <laughs> Rob, Rob, take notes. You eat like that. Red I know. I love. I love Russo's. Russo's sandwich are the best. Oh but yeah, red. Those guys. I've been going in there for thirty years. Yeah, I got in a fight with the guy the other day. First time in thirty years. <laughs> I had to call the owner up. I had to call the owner up and, and complain. He was totally on my side. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get into this. All right, uh, I'm going to give a little background here for anybody who like maybe doesn't know who you are. Okay, um, handsome Dick Manitoba was in the Dictators. He was also in Manitoba's Wild Kingdom. He played a little bit with the MC5 when they reformed. He's a bar owner, Manitoba's, uh, from 1999 until last year. Uh, you also released a solo album this year. Well, actually, 2019, I should say, the end of last year. Yeah, and we're going to talk all about that. But right now, and, and Dictators, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. D- Dictators NYC. 
which oh, is dictators a great version. Right. Great version of the dictators. Yes, yes. I did see that. Was that the version in 2015 when you played Bowery Electric on New Year's? That was Dictators you know NYC, we right? Were, we were we were Manitoba. We were mm-hmm. Manitoba NYC. We were Dictators NYC. Right. It was like we kept trying different things. But what ended up happening is the same band, the same music, the same energy, the same show. Sure. I'll, t- I'll tell you how important branding is these days. Of course. Branding is everything. Because yep. once we put the word dictators, it could have been the dictators garbage to pick up service, you know? But yes. that would have sold. But, well, what, but Manitoba NYC didn't. It was the same band. Yeah, it's the same guys. Yeah. All, all branding. Well, you know, it has to do with hashtagging and, and Twitter and Instagram and putting the, the right thing up and getting it to the right people. That's that's really what that branding is all about these days, you know? Yeah. Um, now, let's go back in time a little bit, okay? We're going to go back to early 70s. And uh, this was a time when, you know, you were from the Bronx and you were doing Quaaludes by the Bunch, like you said. <laughs> okay. Now, the how many, how many people know what Quaaludes are? <laughs> yeah, not too many. Not too many. Not too many, but it was a hell of a drug, right? Oh, my second favorite. Okay, okay. So the band was formed in '72 by uh, Andy Chernoff and Ross the Boss, Scott Top t- Top Ten Kempner. Yeah, New Boy. Now, originally, you were somewhat of the roadie, right? I was the best friend of the band. Best so they, had, they had to throw me a bone. So mm-hmm. I said, I'll be roadie. Now, were you going by the name Handsome Dick Manitoba at that point? Don't think so quite yet. I don't think it, it caught on for a couple of more years, so maybe 73, 74. Right. Maybe, well, maybe. What was the origin of that? Can you can you give a little story how you got that name? Very easy. I'm a big I, I was um, I, I'm a big wrestling fan. I still love professional right. wrestling, right? Uh, although I've become a bigger UFC fan, um, and you know I always like heels, not baby faces. And, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> my favorite heel was uh, the Valiant Brothers heels. The Valiant with Lou Albano, handsome right. Jimmy Valiant. They came strutting out with their long dyed blonde hair and their shiny jackets going, Yo, baby, I'm the best in the world. I will shut up. And they pointed at the and said, Wow, yeah, handsome Jimmy Vadium. I not, I haven't heard that name in years, man. And that they, guy was great. I heard him. We went to see them live and we sat like ringside. I heard him point at a guy go, Shut up, boy, sit down. And, and it was like, <laughs> I was like, These guys are fucking nuts. And, and, I thought I've met everybody in the over the years. I've never been so intimidated by going backstage and seeing those two guys walking down the hallway toward me. I was like, hamma, 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 hamma. <laughs> I was like fucking intimidated. So I just loved handsome Jimmy Valiant. Yeah. So yeah. you know, the only problem with handsome Dick is it 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 you know it begs to have jokes. You know. Yeah. Handsome. The sexual reference. Yeah. Well, you look it up <laughs> online. Half of it, half of it is homoerotica. You know, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, so I would have been like, I would have been better off been like, you know, uh, you know, Broadway Dick Manitoba or, you know, Hollywood Dick Manitoba, you know. Yeah, well, you know, it is what, it is what, what it is. Yeah, I mean. So now, that's how I got it. Manitoba, we just like sort of, went, you know, like the dictators, we went through 50 names. And when we hit the dictators, it was like, that's it. And when we hit yeah. Manitoba, we just like the sound of it. You know, aesthetically, and, and no, yeah, no big deal. That's it. No, and it works, and it stuck with you all these years. So you know, it wasn't like you had to change it. It worked. Um, now, when okay, when did you kind of go from the roadie to them giving you an opportunity to sing? Now, because on the first album, "Go Girl Crazy," that came out in '75, I believe. Um, you're labeled on that as the secret weapon of the band. Like, what was what was the joke behind that? I'm sure there's something there. Well, since I was uh, not a musician and uh, not a quote singer unquote, um, right. but since every time I got up and held the microphone, things got a lot more exciting on stage than uh, I don't even like saying his name, but uh, okay, things got a lot more exciting than the lead singer. Who right. just you know he, he you know uh, um, he he just got out of the hospital. He had a charisma operation. They <laughs> they, they try to put a charisma in him, and uh, 
it didn't take. So he's still the same old guy. But you know, it's like I could I could tell you lots of very very respected people in the music business who said, you know, you should give Richard the microphone more often, simply because what happens when he has the microphone. Now the well, first time yeah. I say. The first time I sang, I sang "Wild Thing," the great Chip, <laughs> Chip Taylor song done by by the uh, by the Trogs, and, yep. um, and, uh, and and I sang it at a place called Popeye's Spinach Factory, Emmons Avenue, Brooklyn, right? Chip Taylor Band, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Chris Stein was there, and and uh, Eric Emerson, who was in the band called the Magic Tramps, a part of the yes. Andy, Andy Warhol crew. So, oh, yeah. you know, and as the years go by, it's one of those stories. I was there, I was there, I was there, and everybody was there. And uh, I got up and I did a drunk, wild thing, and people went twice as crazy. So, after a while, Murray Krugman and God rest his soul, Sandy Perlman, right. who, who ran Blue Oyster Cult and were managing right. and producing us, decided, you know, Richard's got to get more and more and more. They just thought that I was this insane beast with no limitations, <laughs> which I was. And that that was punk rock. That was rock it, and roll. It, but 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 the thing is, it was punk rock. But there was no name punk rock for it. Okay, the the, the term didn't really exist at that point. Which kind of gets me to my next question. All right, because Legs McNeil and John Holstrom, who started Punk Magazine in the mid seventies, claimed that their biggest influences was Mad Magazine and the Dictators' Go Girl Crazy album. Yeah. Okay, that was the inspiration to make that uh, that make that magazine. And since you know, the term punk rock hadn't really been invented yet. They actually called your album, and I, I'm sure it was very fondly called Retard Rock. <laughs> okay. I never heard that. Yeah, it's true. I've heard Legs McNeil say that. Now, how influential do you think Girl Crazy, Go, Go, Go Girl Crazy was to the early scene at CB's and even Max's Kansas City, like the, the clubs around that, that time? Uh... Well, judging by sales overall, (laughs) it's a very uninfluential. Uh, Judging by, you know, we got an album out, and in that scene, it was a it was a uh, fledgling new scene on a place that had never seen anything but drunks and and you know uh, Christian Bowery Bowery bombs and stuff. Yeah, and and all of a sudden, limousines are pulling up, and we had we were the first band that have a full-length album out on a, on a major label. And right. uh, so we got attention. Um, and there were people, uh, I would say it was, there were people that loved it and people that hated it. But I would yeah. say there was a ton of people that loved it right off the bat. Got some really bad reviews. And uh, those who loved it absolutely loved it. Well, you know, it's one of those albums. And it's one of my all-time favorite albums of all time. I would put it in my probably top 15 greatest albums of all time and uh, it's one of those albums to me that it kind of almost like the velvet underground like not too many people bought their records but it seems like everybody who did started the band same with the ramones okay uh you guys kind of like were a catalyst to that now i know even you know you were like a year ahead of everybody in a way okay i mean because really i guess you guys had an album out patty smith had an album out uh, that was about it, really, right? Everybody was like 76 and after that. Right. So, you know, you were, you were doing that thing a year before everybody, and it wasn't even a title, punk rock. There was no genre. It was just rock and roll and, you know, or retard rock, however you want to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you were signed to Epic, and then, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the sales, I guess, made them drop you. Yes. Is that, is, is that what happened? Okay. It's truly accurate. Not too long after that, though, Asylum Records would pick you up, right? Yeah. Okay, now that was originally founded by David Geffen, that label. And uh, the second album that you guys were going to be making was called Manifest Destiny. And it was released in 77. Now, the album to me was a a little more serious and, and a little bit heavier in some ways. Um, I, I think there was some criticism on your first album that it really wasn't taken seriously. I, I don't agree with that, but, you know, that's what I've read in different things. Do you do you feel that that was like an attempt to be more serious with that second album? Well, the first album was like every other bunch of guys standing on every street corner. We're the coolest motherfuckers in the world. 
let's start a band. We're going to be the coolest motherfucking band in the world. Yeah. And we went out. We did what we thought was funny and, right. and, and what we thought represented our lifestyle. And we let it fly. It was sort of, we used to have this uh, teenage, this fanzine called Teenage Wasteland Gazette, named after the Who song. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, Bob nice. O'Reilly, and uh, right. this was the, that was the literary version of the dictators. So yeah. the dictators, um, you know, we were sort of devastated that you know it, it was a, a abysmal failure economically, and we got dropped right away. Yeah. So then, uh, I guess Murray Sandy, I don't remember exactly how it happened. All of us got together. We have to be bigger and stronger. We have to make more money. We have to play in arenas. So that was yeah. like our attempt at being, you know, like having soft songs, powerful songs, and trying to be, you can see by the cover, in arena rock. So we just immediately sort of ditched the first album and tried to be something different on the second album. Well, the, the way that I kind of look at it, and maybe you can tell me if it's true or not, is like with the first album, you had songs like Next Big Thing, Weekend, Teen Generate, uh, I Got You, Babe. Now, I Got You, Babe, your cover of that is so fucking funny and just like ironic in so many ways because you sing it alone and the song is a duet. <laughs> so I always found that to be like, hilarious that you were just doing it to yourself it no like, we sang it together me and Andy. yeah because it's really yeah i'm pretty sure i i it well your voices sometimes sound close but but it seemed more like i don't know maybe i'm wrong all these years i didn't know that i'm pretty sure but my yeah. but then again my memory and my age you know no i think Andy <laughs> started it off Maybe, but it always seemed like it was more just you singing it. I guess maybe you traded off the lyrics. I never realized. Yeah, yeah. I think we traded stuff off. I know I, I know. I came in. You can mm -hmm. tell, like, you know, like, they say we're young and we don't know. Right. We'll find out until we go. And then I went, well, I don't know if all that's true. Yeah. 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 Think, well, it's, it's still, regardless, it's a great version of the song. <laughs> uh, you, you, and, you and Joe Ramon did a great version of it, too. Uh, um, um, now, with the first album, it was more of like, to me, a teenage album. You know, you talk about doing your homework in the bar, you know, and like stuff, lyrics like that. But then when you got to the second album, tracks like Science Gone Too Far, Young, Fast and Scientific, you know, it was a, a little bit different vibe. OK, it was kind of like a less of a teen kind of thing and a little more serious. That's the way I always kind of took it. Um and the version of Search and Destroy is fantastic, by the way. Okay, you. you guys always did that great live. Well, and young fan scientific was just uh, an homage to professional wrestling. Oh, like was we, we were sort of making fun of them. Like, you know, this guy, he's fat. We hated those kind of wrestlers. He's fast and scientific, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we yeah. like guys that would like, gouge your eyes out, you know? Wow, wow. Yeah, like I mean, George the Animal Steel. <laughs> even worse, the Sheik. Oh, the Sheik. The Sheik was great. Yeah, he throw <laughs> fire in your eyes. <laughs> I knew you guys would hit it off with the wrestling. I'm a huge <laughs> wrestling fan. I used to go to the garden back in the... So I grew up in Hell's Kitchen when I was a kid. And my uncle was a, um, a, um, a, a custodian at Madison Square Garden. And when there was wrestling match, I used to go back there, meet those guys, and... The most terrifying guy I ever saw was Andre the Giant. He was the nicest guy, but he scared the shit out of me. I was hiding behind my old man oh. like a child. He's like seven foot five. He was a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I used to like to read what he ate for breakfast. What uh, was that? Something like, you know, like a dozen eggs, a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, a pound of bacon. <laughs> oh, my God. You, you ever heard the story how they got his surgery, where he did that surgery for WrestleMania 3? They had to figure out how much he drank so they could get him the anesthesia to knock him out during surgery. Oh, wow. Wow. Damn. Never heard that. Yeah, wow. it's crazy. So you know how much he drank. They would say he would drink like four or five cases of beer and then he would drive everybody home. <laughs> <laughs> it was insane, yeah. Okay, so the Manifest Destiny album came out in 77, but then in 78, you guys released Blood Brothers, okay? And again, that was produced by Perlman and Krugman. Um, this was the first album that you sang all the songs, right? Um, I, I guess there were most of the songs. I don't remember. 
I think you, yeah, I think you did sing them all on that. Yeah. Now that album cover is a classic. I think it's iconic. You just, you guys on the playground, the silhouette of you guys, just, just a simple cover, the dictators logo. I think that that's just classic. I had a t-shirt of that for years. Um, whose idea was that for the cover? Um, we probably, it's probably a band idea. We, that's, that's a playground. Um, I grew up in a city housing project. Um, and this was one five blocks South where like, I had like 20 friends in this project and, uh, the great writer, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a great writer, Richard Price. He comes. Oh, he wrote Clockers, wrote Clockers. He wrote Clockers. He wrote The Wanderers. He wrote, uh, The Wire. He wrote, I've I've read a few of his books. Yeah. yeah, He wrote uh, Lush Life. Uh-huh. He's, wow. he's an amazing guy, amazing guy. So anyway, he grew up there. I was in the bowling league with his younger brother. He was like four years older than me. I'm still in touch with Richard. Um, and, you know, it, that was the playground where after school we went to play basketball. And then it rained that night uh, and the ground was slick and it added a dimension. Like at first you go, oh, shit, it's raining. And then yeah. when you see the picture and you see it adds this almost like shiny yes. dimension. Yes. That you don't realize. Like, so sometimes what you think is bad is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, you know, you got to see how it comes and out. I was... never knew that about the rain, but now that I'm thinking of the cover, it does have kind of like a shimmering kind of look to it. And that was up yeah, yeah. that was a Parkside playground in the Bronx. Right. Right. And, and one thing that always stuck out is you get a good silhouette of your Afro. Yeah. <laughs> good old Afro. <laughs> Give me that Afro back. I mean, you had the biggest Afro I've ever seen on a white guy. I know. Okay. Well, who else was a Magic Dick had a big Afro. <laughs> how, how, how much work? How much work did you have to put into that thing every day? Oh, nothing. What do you mean work? What do you, what do you think? I was like, uh, I was. I would wake up in I mean, the you, morning. You didn't pick at it. You didn't. Pick I had a it. pick, but I yeah. I rarely used it. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd take my four fingers on each hand, and I just <laughs> I I pull it out all over, and I sort of pull down the sides, and I would just shake it and. You know, I come home with like twigs in my fucking hair, and yeah. you know, like, now, like I don't know that shit caught that shit noticed. caught stuff. When you guys played New Year's Eve 2015 into 2016 at Bowery Electric, I was there with a friend of mine and my wife. Okay, and my wife is is from Haiti. Okay, so I asked her to get, a, and she doesn't. She has dreadlocks. She doesn't wear an afro, but I asked her to get an afro wig. Okay, and she did, and she wore it that night. She was, <laughs> she was in front of you for a little while. I don't know if you noticed her, but but she had the big black afro, and I'm like, yeah, do it for do it for handsome dick. Have an afro for the show. That's funny because in Spain, uh, we were playing on uh, Halloween night, and uh, our promoter got me an afro wig. <laughs> I wore it for like four songs. Oh, did you really? Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Now the uh, the Blood Brothers album. Uh, what do you remember kind of making about this? I mean, again, it was another heavy album, a little more serious, faster and louder was the opening track. So my question is kind of two part. What do you remember about making that album? And is it true that Bruce Springsteen actually goes one, two, three, four? Yeah, yeah, of course. Is that true? Yeah. What was was his connection with the band? Well, there was a legendary place in Midtown, West Side, 45th, 44th Street record plant with some of the greatest albums ever made were made there and bruce Got was it. in like let's say studio a making darkness on the edge of town and then like down the hall like 30 feet down the hall we were like in studio b or c making blood brothers so you know there was a common area of couches and vhs players and so we we, we ha- basically right. you know like bruce and them they, they were like you know, they had money, they were famous, and we didn't have money, we weren't famous, but they, like, they're hanging out, it's like, it's like a Jersey bunch of guys in a band, yeah. Bronx bunch of guys in a band, and we're hanging out laughing and getting to know each other and liking each other, we got along very well, uh, Bruce even called us into the studio one night and said, uh, hey, what do you think of this, and he played Candy's Room for us, I was like, oh, fuck. It's a good song. It's a good song. Wow. I, even if I didn't like it, what am I going to say? Nah, you can, you can do yeah, better than that, Bruce. Of course you're going to say you love no, it. So, yeah. But I did love it, and uh, that album's fantastic. 
And so we hung, we saw each other every day for like 30 days. Like, Bruce, come in and do something in the studio. So like, you know, the, the song goes up. One, two, one, two, three, four. You know, so he did that. You know, you can hear him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it's funny because I never knew that. And when I listened to it recently, I was like, yeah, that is him. I don't know why I never knew that. And he obviously he didn't credit him or anything, but uh, even on um, and he was kind of getting around in 78 with different bands that were kind of underground at the time, like you guys. And then also he's on uh, Lou Reed's Street Hassle that same year. He he does that one verse in the in the in the title track. I don't know if you know. No, that. I didn't. I didn't know that. He, yeah, he yeah, came up know, on the, stage the... after Three Nights at the Garden. Mm-hmm. At the, he played three nights at the Palladium, I think it was, and uh, and he came right. up on stage and played a show, and um, get, went off stage with people, Bruce, Bruce, and he, cut, he switches into a Dictator's T-shirt, and he says, "This one's for HD and the boys," and he plays "Born to Run." Oh, and and nice, uh, nice. you got to understand something. I went to the Garden one night to see Bruce. It's a bunch of years back with my friends who were very successful uh, accountants and lawyers, Bruce, Bruce fanatics. And I'm telling my friends about this story that I just told you. And he goes home and he's got like hundreds of cassette tapes and he pulls the cassette tape out of that fucking night. And I shake it up to Steve's wow. office and I have it turned into a CD. So I have a CD of, of that whole show. That, yeah. that whole thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, you guys would break up after this album, right? Dictator would break yeah. up. Um, and in 1981, uh, Raw Records released the Fuck Em If They Can't Take a Joke album, okay? And this this was my introduction to you guys. That was the first thing <laughs> I ever heard, okay, from, from you guys. And your intro, the live stuff, you know, when you start that, that half of the way you're yelling at the audience and everything, it's just nuts, Okay. And there were two tracks that you guys introduced with that, that particular album, the New York, New York and Loyola. Yeah. Right. Now, New York, New York, you would, that would become an instant classic and you would do that later on with uh, uh, Manitoba's Wild Kingdom. Okay. Which you started around 86. Right. Um, At that point, when, when that album came out, when you got that band together, um, part, the party starts now was kind of a, a a big hit on MTV. I remember seeing the video. Uh, I remember being like, "Wow, this is a great fucking song," and you guys were kind of that that song was wedged in between you know hair metal bands on MTV. Uh, you know, it would be on like uh, I don't think they had Headbangers Ball yet, but it was like shows like that. All of a sudden, I'd see you on MTV, and I was like, "Wow," you know, and. Then the album came out and you had uh, New York, New York. You brought back for that. That was the album called And You, question mark. And You, like that. Um, were you surprised at some of the success of Manitoba's Wild Kingdom with that? Like with the video? Did you, did you think that could happen? Um, I, you know, I've just been used to put out, I put three albums out and, you know, nothing. Um, so I, I wasn't... Uh, I was. You were you just making music for yourself? Yeah, no, I wasn't sitting there thinking like this is going to be, a. But you know, the record business. You had guys patting you on the back, saying buy buy that condo for your parents in Florida. This is going to be a big hit. Three weeks later, we're at a uh, convention in like uh, Texas, and they're like totally ignoring us. That's the fucking record business. They'll pat you on the back. Um, It was it was a radio hit. It was a. DJs all over the country Friday afternoon would play the party starts now. Happy weekend and happy have a great weekend. Yeah, it's like a weekend. It didn't it didn't transfer. It didn't uh, go through to the street, you know. So again, we didn't sell any records. But you know, you got some critical recognition of it because Rolling Stone called it like the first great punk rock album of the night. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I I might have. <laughs> I might have forgotten it. Well, I I, I agree because I played the shit out of it when I got. It's a, it's a good record. I, I like that record. record. It is. It is. Um, 
Now, after Manitoba's Wild Kingdom, you kind of went in different directions. And in a few years after that, you would open your bar, Manitoba's, on Avenue B near 7th Street. Now, what got you into the bar business? What what made you interested in doing something like that? Because that's a lot of work on top of, you know, being a musician. Well, I was bartending and people were coming to visit me. They found out, oh, I worked in this bar. So, you know, I'd get some some fairly regular visits from people from states and countries. And, you know, I started thinking like, you know, I'm ching-chinging for somebody else. You know, why don't I put together a package and, and get my own bar and make it like a dictator's right. rock and roll? Because, you know, CBGB's is closed. Yeah. This could yeah. be a little bit of a, of a historical thing. So um, I, after right. about two years, I got rid of my partner and I put like, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of pictures on the wall and posters. And uh, sell, I'm selling them now to eat. And uh, um, you can go on my Instagram page, see what's available. Anyway, uh, so, right. um, you know, I, I, so I, I always want to do more. I, I don't like to sit still. Like, I don't like to do one thing. I can't sit in a desk and do a job five days a week. I just can't. It's, it's not in my, it's not right. in me. So, you know, I like to do like four things at once. Check up on the bar, go watch a Yankee game at the bar. Uh, go do my radio show, go on the road for three weeks to Europe, you know? So, you know, that's, uh, the, the bar was just like, it was a clubhouse to me. It was a clubhouse and it was a place that people could come like from England and say, and like five guys yeah. would come in the bar and go, we're from England. This is a great bar. It makes us feel like a, yeah. a home bar. Um, and, right. and that was it. The only problem was I wasn't a great bar businessman. I was, a, I was a good bar get people in but i wasn't a great bar businessman like you, you really like you have to be it's a business like a restaurant you have to be married to it you have to keep an eye on it every day all day and it was too small if it was bigger like twice the size i could pay somebody eight nine hundred dollars a week manage it someone i trusted and then just you know i could afford that and and then i can just right. bring people in i don't have to count the fucking quarter of a bottle of of, of vodka versus yeah. an eighth of a bottle of vodka. And I was just not good at it. So, and because we couldn't hire someone to, to do all that work I didn't want to do, it, it just, it was a roller coaster. It, we had, it was up and down, up and well, down, you, up and down. You did, you did hang on for 20 years, which is, you know, longer yeah. than a lot of places no, I, I, do the, the, these days. And I, I think a lot of it was, was, you know, notoriety. Okay. Your name. And also, you know, I used to go there a lot in the early years. And what I loved about it was just the music. Okay. You were playing fantastic playlists all the time. I get drunk and whatever. And that's to me, that's what I look for in bars. I look for like good jukeboxes and things like that. And you always had great music going and it was a good vibe there. You know, in the early years for a long time, I enjoyed it. Um, well, for a couple of years, we did real good. And that was when my, my, um, yeah. my son's mother took over, but, um, she had a lot of the wrong kind of friends and uh, she didn't do right. very well in that environment, if you know what I mean. And I had to choose like, yeah. you know, you know, if I left her in there, it would have been like not good, but there would have been money in the bar, more money. If I didn't leave her in there, right. it wasn't, wasn't good for the bar, but it might have helped the family. But in the end, none of it worked. <laughs> hey, well, it's yeah. you know, fucking life man, yeah. sometimes, you know? But in the in the early two like late nineties early two thousands you guys were ready to come out with a, another Dictators album, and in two thousand and one you came out with probably what I would say is 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 I think it's your best album honestly is the DFFD Dictators Forever yeah. Forever Dictators, and uh, I, I consider this album a masterpiece I really do okay and uh, there's the one track Who Will Save Rock and Roll that to me is just it's up there with some of the best songs I've ever heard. Uh, Savage Beat is great. What's up with that? I love that one. Uh, in the presence of a new God. But in Who Will Save Rock and Roll, just the album starts with that. And when I first heard it, it blew my mind. Now, there is one particular lyric in that song. I got to ask you about because we could probably do a whole podcast just on this topic. And Who Will Save Rock and Roll? You have the one line that says June 1st, 67, something died and went to heaven. I wish Sergeant Pepper never taught the band to play. All right. Now, 
I take that as you shitting on the Beatles a little bit. Can you can you I, I didn't talk write, about that a little bit? You know, I you didn't write, write that lyric? lyric. Okay. Okay. So what what was the meaning? Of My that guess lyric? is is uh, is um um that that it was the Beatles got like sort of very artsy artsy mm-hmm. and super creative and yep. And you know, uh, took everything um, maybe out of the neck down and put it in the neck up, which is like Bob Dylan territory. But but I might be mm, totally right. wrong. I don't know what what. No, I I, I, I took it almost you know very much like that. Like uh, Lester Bangs uh, had a one one of his writings. He, he said how after Sergeant Pepper came out, that rock and roll all of a sudden was taken seriously. Like prior to that, it was for teenagers. It was kind of like for retards and you know, juvenile delinquents and, you know, shit like that. And then, and then when Sergeant Pepper came out, all of a sudden it was like, oh, now it's an art form. Now I agree with that mostly. It's not totally accurate, but when I heard that lyric, I, I knew that that was touching on that. And that always, that always stuck with me. But do you, do you agree with that at all? That like, at that point, after Sergeant Pepper came out, rock and roll was was treated more seriously, kind of, almost as an art form, or, or, or not? Um, what do you think? Well, it, it, you're, it's a two question. Uh, hold on one second. Sure. Sorry. Um, and, and no problem. My, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, meal replacement uh, fucking blended drink. Anyway, um, well, there's this a two-pronged thing you're saying here. You're asking me to respond to people that said, like, that was the end of rock and roll as we knew it, and it changed into something else. Um, do I agree with that? That was a great example of rock and roll um, moving to another direction, especially it was done by the greatest band there ever was. So they, you know, they're leading, they're leading the pack. On the other hand, I think um, everybody falls in love with something that they fall in love with and they don't want it to change, which is uh, selfish, which is, which is like, I don't want it to change. I want it to stay this way forever, the way I know it, the way I think it should be. And I think, you know, it, uh, a musical genre evolved. It evolved, and if you don't think it evolved for the better, okay, me, I do, because I think now we have the old, the old stuff we love, um, and now we have this whole new thing to to, to check out, you know. Right. So. Right. Right. I, I could I couldn't agree with you more. I, I I think like it definitely changed rock and roll the perspective that people had of rock and roll. Okay, uh, it was taken a little more seriously, almost as an art form. But eventually it would all come full, full circle with punk rock later on, you know, 10 years later. And, you know, everything kind of like yeah, re- yeah. circulates itself, you know, and comes back again. So I, I agree with you. I definitely agree with you. Um, after that album came out, you guys played around for a couple of years with it and everything. You were touring behind it a little bit. But then you got involved with the reformed MC5. I think that was about 2005. Uh can you talk a little bit about that? I, I know that you've been on record for many times in interviews uh, as a big MC5 fan. So you were kind of filling Rob Tyner, who had passed away. You were filling his shoes. You know, can you talk about that, what that was like? I was uh, in a pouring rain leaving a supermarket with my son in his uh, carriage with the plastic over him. And I get a call from Wayne Kramer while I'm smoking a cigarette and blowing it behind me so as not to get in my son's face. And Wayne's going, listen, we have this tour. It's two and a half, three weeks of Europe, uh, six different countries or whatever. And, uh, you know, 22 shows, whatever. And um, would you be interested in doing it? I said, well, let me go home and ask the boss. And um, she said, of course, you should go. And, uh, and I went. But the reason he called me was because they had been in New York doing a show at the Bowery Ballroom and uh, there were a few guest stars that came up and I came up and did two songs and the Village Voice said Hanson Dick Manitoba practically stole the show 
So I thought I thought that that went a long wow. way toward me that you know they they had a list of MC5 friendly musicians and singers and I was now on that list and uh I did that those bunch of shows I did uh, a few songs at Central Park a song a set at uh, uh, a record store in LA the Casbah in San Diego um UCLA Rose Hall um, you know, blah, blah, blah. So about 30, right. 35 shows with them all together. And it was an honor. Basically, the way wow. I put it is Wayne Kramer called me up just in a nutshell and said, how would you like to get paid to travel around Europe and sing Kick Out the Jams? And I said, uh, <laughs> I'd like that, Wayne. I'd like that. I'll take you up on that. Sure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's great, and I I, re- I was following that a little bit. Uh, the, the, you know, reading about the European shows, they yeah, were pretty well received. We, I had a blast. I never traveled in a bus like that, country to yeah. country. I loved it. It was yeah. a great experience. What was the What was the country What was the country you think was the best to play in in Europe? As, as oh man, I don't remember. I remember doing one in Germany where um where uh, I had to follow Lemmy because Lemmy was in one of the tents and. Like on yeah. one side was like uh, Rage Against the Machine in front of like 20,000 people. On the other side was like 8,000 people. And that was our side. And, and uh, you know, I didn't want to fucking follow Lemmy. And uh, he came up. Yeah, right. He comes up. That's hard to do. Hold on one second. He comes up and, and he's here. I'm so glad I'm living in the USA. Yeah, well, I mean, you know what? Lem- Lemmy was on record many times saying the MC5 no, was he like said the Beatles were. band of all time. Oh, yeah, actually true. But he also said the MC5 were like really yeah, influential. No, yeah, le- yeah. Me and Joey Ramone the in the World true. Trade Center, we, we interviewed him because Joey said, Hey Dick, you know, like you know, you're really good in talking, and like you know, yeah. come on, help me do this interview of Lemmy. I said, no problem, Joey. So we go down there. <laughs> was that was that when uh, I'm trying to remember? Was that when? No, it might have been later on. Do you remember when Joey yes. had that Z Rock show? Yes, like around ninety ninety one, something like that. You were I'm on sure that I show, guess right? On I, you, I you know I have I have. Two 90 minute cassettes of those shows. But the problem is, I don't have a cassette player anymore. Go I on eBay to, for $5. I have to, yeah, I need to get like a little Panasonic, you know, thing that we used to record off the radio kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to listen to them again because I'm pretty sure you're, you're a guest on one. I think the first song he played when he had that show was Kick Out the Jams. And then next Joe, big thing, like right after Joey that. Joey was very, very loving, loyal friend to the dictators. We came up together, right. you know? Oh, I know. I know. I know. And I'm going to talk about Joey a little bit in a minute. But I just wanted to, you know, the, the time you were starting with the MC5, playing around with them, was around the time you started with your radio show uh, the, on Little Steven's Underground Garage. Um. That was a great show. I used to listen to it often. Um, what was it like going from kind of like singer to being a DJ? You know, it seems like it's such a different dynamic because you're not just concentrating on your own music, but you're kind of thinking of others as well. So did they let you, they let you program your own no, no, stuff? No, the or, you know, what is uh, computer programmed. If I showed you, to make the closest analogy I could say is if you got a loose leaf, with tabs, and each tab had a different genre, subgenre, and and then yeah, eight pages of certain music, and then there was a soup recipe or a chili recipe, which said every you know every four hour show I did four hour shows, everyone else did three. Every four hour show there has to be one Ramon song, or two Ramon songs, one or two Bird songs, one or two Beatles songs, one or two Stone songs, yeah, and then. You know, then you pick from this era, this like the 50s, 60s, this type of music, this type of music. So it was really mixed around. And then you always had about 30% of, of new bands or more on. And um, 
And yeah. uh, that, that's the way that went. But, you know, I'll I tell you a good analogy of how to do that. It's like Robert De Niro acting, right? Robert De Niro is a great actor. And he has this personality right. that comes across strong. And if you watch him, he really, you see a lot of, even in the comedy, comedy is the same as Goodfellas. Like, is it the same, you know, power and violence? No. But, you know, he, he takes his Robert De Niro thing and he applies it. He applies it to different things in the world. This is a different job doing a comedy, but I'm still Robert De Niro. So what I did was figure out yeah. how do I become Dick Manitoba that <clears throat> runs a bar that's on stage. It's not just it's a different craft, but how do I apply the craft, which is me talking and me entertaining people, but it's a slightly different craft. Right. So, you know, it takes a little while. The first few shows I listened to weren't that great, but after a while I got fluid and lucid and relaxed I would make mistakes and I wouldn't even check. Mm -hmm. I would just make fun of myself, you know? And yeah. So that's the thing. That's what we we do. That's what we do here, Richard. Okay. Like on our podcast, we just kind of like, we leave in the mistakes. It's human. Because it's it's our personalities coming through. And I think that. Yeah, it's very human. Your show was was definitely (laughs) human for sure. I mean, it was fun. And your personality is very strong. It goes through. Uh, so do I. But I no, Stephen, uh, I screwed up with the boss. And, uh, you know, I can yeah. say whatever I want. He treated me great. He was a great guy for 40 years. And then um, right. everybody's different. Look, you can mm-hmm. have, it's, everything's a relationship. A, uh, your friend is a relationship. Your mother and father, your girlfriend, your wife, your kids. It's all relationships. And everybody acts the way they act based on who they are. Like, personally, my vote was I yeah. feel that I got really hammered for the few things that I might have done wrong. And, uh, I mean, Steve didn't agree with me. He's the boss. And that was that. But, you know, it was a great 40-year friendship. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, you, you, you just agree to disagree, I guess, and you go hey, separate. So, ways, Mike, right? let's get to the – let's talk about the new album. Let's get down to business. Talk about the new album. Talk about his uh, podcast. Uh, talk about his mm-hmm. Patreons also So, because he got a lot of things going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Real quick before we talk about that, we were talking about the Ramones. Okay, now you guys – were, were, you know, you've always had a, a great friendship with, with Joey, and, and like you said, you came up through together. Um, what is it you miss the most about that I, now? What guys? I miss the most, well, besides beside having Joey live like a couple of blocks away from me, and, you know, hey, how you doing? What's up? What are you doing? And just missing him as a personality and a buddy in the neighborhood and, and being Joey. You know, you couldn't yeah. walk down the street without Joey. I was unrecognized. You walked down the street with, with, with Joey. He's also yeah. you know, a very unique-looking human being. Right. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, Tommy, I was I was pals with. We had the same birthday. And Tommy's a really smart, quiet guy. I was got along good with him. Uh, Didi, yes. you know, I got along with Didi, but Didi was, you know, he had his wackadoo problem, so I wasn't too close to him. And yeah, yeah, and and Johnny, um, was... you know, kept to himself, guy to me. And but but he was very um, respectful and friendly. So I, I always do like I see Johnny backstage, you know, go see the Ramones play, and the first thing I say, Johnny, what do you think it is? And I mentioned something specific about the Yankees because he was diehard Yankee fan. So am I. So we talk- yeah, big Yankee fan. Me and too, big say, Yankee uh, fan. You know, said we talk, and he said, "Good to see you, Dick." And you know, that was it. But Joey was, uh, Joey was my buddy. Like we had dinner over each other's houses, and and uh, he lived like three blocks away from me. You know. Yeah. And what I miss about them as a band is what I miss yeah. about all the great bands as a band. Like I wonder what the Clash would be doing. I wonder what the Ramones would be doing. I wonder what right. Jill in the Blank would be doing. Wow. Right. Yeah, it's true. You don't know what they'd be doing. It's it's a it's a mystery, unfortunately. And Joey's missed uh, to this day. I, I knew him a little bit. He was a great guy. Uh, I miss his little shows he would put on at the Continental or CBS. Oh, yeah, like I was doing a party, helping out new bands. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now let's yeah. talk about your new album that's out. Okay. Uh, in November, you released your first solo album on the Handsome Dick Manitoba uh, called Born in the Bronx. Now, I listened to this album a couple of times, and it seems to me it's kind of like a self-reflective kind of album in some ways. You're talking about your Bronx roots, but then you're even hinting at some other things like, you know, drug abuse, like yeah. the cooker and the, and the hit Don't forget, song. me and Ross put a uh, song out before and, that, uh, the, the single... Um, what was called that? Called uh, Supply and Demand. And yes, I, ran I do remember Mark, that. Yes, who wrote yeah, about okay. forty books on rock and roll history, mm-hmm. and is an absolutely brilliant guy whose wife manages Bruce Springsteen, right. co-managers. And he goes, Richard, that song's a fucking mm-hmm. masterpiece. And I go, Come on, Dave, it's a good, solid rock tune. He goes, yeah. No, 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 it's a masterpiece. He called it. No, okay, it is a good. Thank song. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, with the new album, okay, yeah. you worked with yeah. uh, a guy named John Tiven, I understand. Okay, uh, can you talk about what went into this album a little bit for a few minutes, and just you know we can talk about uh, okay, well, how people you know, can get it. I was at a party it. and someone said, "Hey, I'm friends with John Tiven." I said, "John Tiven, haven't heard his name in years." In the seventies, he and Andy were sort of like friendly enemies with different fanzines. And we opened up for the Stooges once, and, and he, sa- he said to Andy, why don't you just let Richard be the lead singer? I mean, people just go, you know, and Andy does not like hearing that because Andy wants to own all the airspace around the dictators. And it's not fair because Ross put in 43 years, Scott put yeah. in 40 years, I put in 45 years, you know? It's not fair for one person to do that. But anyway, that's the way right. the personalities are. And... Um, and, um, you know, I was always like, you know, oh, I was always, always like the sidekick and, you know, Rich is not to be taken seriously. He, you know, Andy never liked the way I worked or <laughs> treated my craft, although it seemed like a lot of other people did. Uh, I, 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 we should have just got along great. And he did what he did. And I did what I did. And it was none of his business. But, you know, it's his songs. And he was getting tired of, uh, you, know, you don't know this, but DFFD, it was rejected. Because because he, it was a jerk off album, he was really? jerking off in the studio with some girl uh, doing three songs on the record. I had like two songs on the record, and all our promoters all over the world were like, "What's this? What is it?" What is this? So he wrote three more like hard rock, hmm. handsome dick songs, and the album came out. So um, whatever was, and for years, I like look, I'm not blaming it all on them, but they weren't great people to be around to pat you on the back. Or to be like, if I came up with a few lines. Now, let me tell you something. There were there, people were laughing at my lines I came up with um, about uh, in the 1980s, and I kept some of those lines. John Tiven is fucking brilliant. Andy could talk. Andy could talk about working on 80 albums. John right. Tiven worked on 60 albums. You know, he did Wilson Pickett's last record. He did Steve Cropper. Is a good friend is, and he's wow. worked with Steve, one of the all-time geniuses in our music history, Steve Cropper. Okay, he worked with uh, Don right. Covey, Mercy, Mercy, Arthur Alexander, Anna, Come Home to Him, that the Beatles covered, and like forty-five other great, great artists. He plays seven instruments, and he got together with wow. me. I said, I got some ideas for songs. Right. I'd sit in this tiny telephone booth up at Sirius doing my show. And then I'd stop for 10 or 15 minutes because I could, as long as I did my show in time, it was cool. So I'd stop for 10 or 15 minutes and I'd write song, uh, yeah. lines. So I'd give him like 15, 16 lines and he would like, you know, maybe move one around and say, Richard, do me a favor, write a three part bridge right here and blah, blah, blah. The next day, I swear, I swear to you, the next day I'd wake up and he plays seven instruments and he has a studio in his house in Nashville. There'd be a song. Now, was it the final song? No, but it was wow. the song. And we kept doing that. And when no. you say it's all introspective, it's not such a retrospective album. It's an everything album. It's a me soup to nuts. Because listen, there's a song about yeah. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Okay? Right. There's three songs about girls. That's true. That's true. There's a song about <laughs> heroin addiction. There's a song yeah. about, like, you know, the, this is the one line. I wrote in the 80s and nobody paid attention. I'm trying to watch Kojak on my TV, but the, but the cops busted dudes yep. outsiders. More fun to see. That comes from me 
uh, renting a tiny room in someone's apartment on Avenue B in the 80s and looking out the window and seeing the cops flying on the sidewalk trying to catch someone. And I wrote a song about how my TV yep. is my best friend. It's never let me down. And, you know, so I wrote a, an ode to T. I wrote about Magenta <laughs> Park, really tough playground near my house. So it was a really, you know, yes. like like the Yankees, the Yankees and Yankee Stadium. And, you know, it was a, right. a lot the Bronx and girls and a movie. And, and, and see what you really got to realize, the surfing song, what you really got to realize, a lot of people don't realize, is there are yep. reference points in there to like comic books, wrestling, other other songs. I did I quoted yeah. Brian Wilson like three times in one song, you know? So it to me it was like yep. a yep. really great soup to nuts version of me. And you know, at sixty five when it came out, white guy sixty five putting out a rock record on a tiny, tiny, tiny little label, you know, no one's gonna fucking beat the drum for me. But um the way I look at it is very few people have heard it. So to me, if I if I bang the drum in six months, it's like a new album. <laughs> I look, I, I, I had six <laughs> listen. All of a sudden, the guy who couldn't write a song put 13. I had six left over. I had 19 songs. And then I, I got seven more songs on my cell phone. I have like 24 more songs. Right. At least. You got a whole other album. Two albums. So all yeah. of a sudden, I'm yeah. a songwriter. Well, at least all right. well, lyricist. let's. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Richard, I want to thank you for coming on, okay? And we're going to uh, ask you, what's the best way to find you? Okay, so you I have a podcast called You Don't Know Dick, which can be can be found uh, wherever <laughs> uh, wherever fine podcasts are broadcast. Um, all your regular places. It's easy to find. Yep. On YouTube, I have a, no, you're on the Hanson Dick Manteau program. On YouTube, which I'm not trying to make like my my son shows me like, you know, like uh, you know, uh, what's this guy? Sixty nine. This guy, this pop, uh, this hip hop guy, sixty nine had like eight, in the first three days they had like eight point one million yeah. views of the first song to drop. I'm not I'm not going for that. I'm just going to have yeah. fun with it. If I get the inspiration to do more, I'll do more. Right now, like one that one episode was five minutes long. How to make good scrambled eggs. One was. Uh, you know, yeah, one was. Uh, I saw I that. I do I whatever I want to do. I look I however that. I want to look. I try to make it interesting. Mix, mix it up. So, so that's that. We, um, I have a great website. It's a really nice website because I believe in in writing like a paragraph or two and a picture, a picture, a paragraph, a paragraph, a picture, and it's uh, handsomedickmanitoba.com and you'll see like a ton of pictures from the bar. And a couple little pieces of writing for me. And there you can um, find out about my website, uh, my podcast. You can find out if you, uh, this is what my friend told me, who's been doing podcasts. One of the first five guys that did podcasts in America. He's been doing it. It's an amazing show, if you don't mind me pushing my friend's show. It, it, it's called um, Rock and, The Rock and Roll Geek Show. And it's been on since like 19, oh, 2005. And uh, and. And he said to me, you know the way he pushes his stuff? He goes, listen, if you get value out of what I do, if you get entertainment out of what I do, if you get joy out of what I do, I'm doing this on my couch in my house. It's totally DIY. Whatever you can contribute, a dollar a month, $2 a month, $3 a month, you know, 50 cents a month, $10 a month, whatever you think I'm worth. If you don't, if you're not going to entertain me, you're not going to listen. If you are, and you're enjoying it, and you look forward to it, please contribute so I can keep doing it. And that's that's what I say. And you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon.com, slash Handsome Dick Manitoba. And let's see, in Instagram, you know, you can hit me up at as uh, Richard Manitoba or Handsome Dick Manitoba, and you could join on YouTube. On, um, I have eight pages of fucking... Uh, Facebook, but the best one to get me on is not my private one. That's like family and food. <laughs> the best one to get get me on is uh, yeah, is the Handsome okay. Manitoba fan club. And on uh, what else is there? Twitter. I'm uh, Dick Manitoba, and uh, I think Richard Manitoba. I don't even remember. Okay, okay, cool. 
Well, I want to thank you again for coming on, Richard. And uh, this whole thing was fantastic. I loved it. Uh, you answered a lot of questions, a lot of depth. I appreciate that. And uh, Rob, let's, That's uh, it, let's people. end the show. What, thank what you, Dick. Thank you for everything. And um, I'll send you the links to everything. And I'll, and I'll plug your uh, Patreon, your Twitter, and all your stuff. And like every show, remember, guys, don't get drunk. Fellas, get thank you. Thank don't get drunk. Thank get you, thank you me, brothers. Take care. Thank you. Right back at you. Love you, man. Take care.